So one owed 500 days wages and the other 50 days wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that God would help us. Father, we pray that you would help us as we get into this text and hear this account of Jesus, that you would make it real to us, so much so that our hearts are changed, whether for the first time or in a deeper new way for us who have known Jesus for a while. We pray you send us out this morning um, trusting Jesus more, and we pray in his name, amen. So have you ever had a dinner invitation go terribly, terribly wrong? Uh, I don't, that doesn't usually happen to me, but there is one specific incident when I was asking Jummy, what's the worst, you know, dinner thing we've ever had? Um, and uh, one immediately came to mind. So I used to live in Korea. I lived there a lot of my, so many of my stories start this way, sorry. Just a lot of, a lot of stuff happened. I was there for a long time. Um, so I, when I was in Korea, after Jummy and I got married, we were living in this area of Seoul called Sadang, and there weren't a lot of foreigners like me in Sadang. So it was kind of fun when one of my friends from church, Sarah, she told us that one of, she had a new coworker that had just moved to Sadang. So I was kind of interested, like maybe I can meet this guy, maybe we get to hang out or something. So um, one day I, I'm walking around Sadang and I see this other foreigner guy and I come and say hi to him. And it turns out that this was Sarah's coworker, David. And he actually even lived on the same block as us, like three or four uh, buildings down. And he seemed like this nice, fun dude. Um, and I, so I told him, hey, you should come over to our house sometime for dinner. Uh, I told him that, hey, I know Sarah from your work. From, she goes to our church. And he was like, oh, man, are you a Christian? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, man, I'm really interested in the Bible. Uh, and I was like, yeah, we can talk about it when you come over or something. And he's like, yeah, I've got a lot of questions about the tree of life. It's so interesting, dude. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it, we can talk about that, too, if you want. So um, the day comes, it's Friday, and he comes over to my house, and it starts off for a few minutes, it's okay, but then he's, as we get into the meal, he starts talking about the tree of life, and he just keeps rambling on about the tree of life from Genesis chapter 2. Um, he's got no questions, he's got lots to say about the tree of life, and as he kept talking, I kept getting these, uh, res resonated with something that had happened at our church a few months ago, where we had had these two girls come to our church, and they had a very similar spiel, I was realizing. And these two women that had come to our church, they're actually members of this Korean cult called Shincheonji. And uh, Shincheonji is, uh, there's a lot of cults in Korea. Shincheonji is one of the more famous ones. And they were trying to lead astray our church members a few months ago. And we were like, you got to leave. Don't come in here anymore. And so suddenly I was like, wait, David, are you in Shincheonji? <laughs> and he acted like surprised, like, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I've never heard of, I don't know what that word means or anything. Um, and then I was like, uh, do you deny the teachings of Shinchinji? And then suddenly he knew what Shinchinji was all of a sudden. And he was like, he kept saying, listen, I met this dude who, he answered all my questions. That's what he kept saying. I met this guy who answered all my, I think he wanted me to meet his uh, teacher guy. 
Um, but he would never deny that he was in Shinchenji. He would never confess that he was in Shinchenji. It was really weird. So at this point, I'm trying to get curious with this guy, and I'm like, oh, I want to know, how did this guy from New Jersey end up in this Korean cult? So I'm trying to ask, like, his background, where he's from, and stuff like that, and he's just, like, totally deflects my questions. He, he doesn't want me to get into his background, I guess. And so he wants to talk about the tree of life, and I kept shutting that down. It got awkwarder and awkwarder and awkwarder, more awkward and more awkward and more awkward. I felt bad for Jungmi looking back, her sitting there the whole time not knowing what's going on or what to expect. Um, and finally, it was, it was the shortest dinner party thing I've ever done before. It was like 20 minutes. I was like, see you later, man. Close the door. And I remember turning back to Jungmi like, what? <laughs> what just happened? This guy had ruined all of my plans for this great dinner party. This guy, David, had completely blown it up and ruined them. I just wanted to meet and, you know, have a relationship with this guy in my neighborhood. But he destroyed it. It was nothing like I expected was going to happen. Um, I bring up this story because I think I have some idea what Simon, the host at this dinner party that we just read about, might be feeling as his dinner party blew up in his face. But not because Jesus was uh, telling him some weird interpretation of Genesis 2 and lying to him and being a weirdo, uh, but because Jesus was, was entering into this place and exploding it with the gospel, with the good news of salvation through trusting in him. Um, we're going to unravel this as we kind of go through the text. Basically, what we do is we go through the text. I try not to get in the way of what God has done in this text, and we're just going to see what happens in this text. Um, but the main message of this text, if you were to take it, is, is from Jesus. Trust in me. Entrust yourself to me, is what this text says from God. I want all of you. I want your body. I want your soul. I want your body in life and death, and I want your soul in life and death. And you can trust me. This is what Jesus says in this text. Give yourself to me. It's quite an invitation, uh, or it could be a demand if you want to hear it that way too. Um, what should our response be as we understand, come to understand what is going on in this text? This text gives us three reasons, at least, to know and to trust in Jesus, that he is trustworthy, that you can indeed entrust yourself to this man. And these are our three points. The three these are three reasons from our text why he is trustworthy. First of all, Jesus brings new life. Secondly, Jesus brings new death. And Jesus brings you peace. So you can trust him. So our first point, Jesus brings new life. Uh, let's begin just by entering the scene in verse 36 and see what's going on. Um, Luke writes, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So Jesus loved eating with all kinds of people. You could do a whole sermon series on meals with Jesus. Um, here he's invited by a Pharisee named Simon. Now we can just infer from this one verse a lot about this guy, Simon. First of all, he is this respected religious leader in their community. He's a Pharisee. Um, he's also wealthy because he has a house. He has a house that he can have a feast in like this, a big dinner like this in. And apparently, Simon also has some kind of desire to get to know Jesus. He's heard about him. Maybe he's heard Jesus uh, teaching. Maybe he's seen Jesus do a miracle. And Simon would like to find out a little bit more about Jesus. So Simon and Jesus and some other people are gathered around this table. And I, I've got to name this, okay? So there's this really weird thing that people used to do back then. Um, in the ancient world of this time and centuries after, 
maybe they still do this in some cultures, but I think I have a picture of it, maybe. This is how people, this is how people used to sit around the table when they have special meals. I don't usually do pictures, but this is just too different for us, uh, for me anyway. So when you sat at a table for a special meal, you actually lay down on this couch, and you put your head facing the table, and your feet are behind you. It does not look comfortable at all to me. <laughs> but I guess that's how they did things back then. Um, so this is what, if you can imagine, Jesus was around a scene like this. And another quirk of these ancient feasts was that whenever the rich would throw these gatherings, throw these feasts, the poor and the other normies from the town could all gather around and watch them and listen to them as they had their meal together. They quietly sit there or stand there and listen to them as they were talking. It's so, so weird. <laughs> but this is what they did before Facebook and TikTok. I mean, this is almost like uh, mukbang. You guys know what mukbang is? It's a Korean thing. We watch people eat on YouTube. It's kind of like mukbang. <laughs> so there's like this quiet crowd around this, uh, this dinner party, and they're watching and they're listening to hear the imp- this influential people's conversation, maybe hear their take on the issues of the day. And Simon e- is eating with his guests, um, and I'm guessing he was having a good time. He's got like the hottest celeb of the day in his house, and he's got a crowd watching him, Simon, interact with Jesus. But then his dinner party takes a sudden, dramatic turn. Look in verse uh, 37 and 38. This woman steps out from the midst of the crowd. And she would have been just like an invisible person in the crowd before. But she steps out, and she starts walking up behind where Jesus is reclining. And the text calls her a woman of the city. Uh, you can say woman of the streets, woman of the night. It's, she is, a, is a, a euphemism for a prostitute. And apparently she was very popular at her job because she has this very expensive alabaster flask, which would have carried this extremely fragrant oil um, or ointment. And she's got this in her hands as she's coming toward Jesus. And these are really important back before regular baths, back before regular showers, back before deodorant. Women used to wear these around their necks, and they had a little hole in it. And so the fragrance, a little bit at a time, would come out. And it was really strong inside. A little bit at a time would come out. Um, just, and there was a little hole just so it wouldn't all spill out. And she comes up behind Jesus. And the text doesn't say how she's come to know him. Maybe she was in the, one of the crowds that was listening to his teaching. Or maybe there's some unrecorded meeting that Jesus has, has had with this woman before this. Um, All we can infer for sure is that something has happened to her. Jesus has come to deeply affect this woman. So she comes up behind Jesus with this jar, this little bottle, and she's planning to do something with it. But before she can do it, before she can carry out what she wants to do, she begins crying right behind Jesus' feet. And the tears start to come out, and his tears are so so, uh, effusive that they even begin to wet his feet as she's standing behind him. And this was not part of her plan. (laughs) And as she's there crying right behind Jesus and the tears start to fall on his feet, this might have been the first time that he noticed her when he started to feel these wetness on his feet. And then the next thing she does is she unbraids her hair. She lets her hair down, which would have been like unthinkable. This scene's pretty weird already. This would have been unthinkable at the time. Women do not let, if you let your hair down in public, you could be divorced if you were married, for example. So she lets her hair down. And she starts to rub his feet with the tears on, she's w- on his feet. She starts to rub the tears into his feet and cleaning his feet with her hair. And then, and then she begins kissing his feet. 
She, and then she breaks the jar that she has, this expensive jar, and she starts laying on the ointment and rubbing it into his feet. And as she's doing this, she's crying. She's weeping. Now imagine this scene. Imagine the conversations one by one dying off as people start to notice what's going on over here at this side of the table. Everyone starts to get more and more quiet as she's weeping and wiping the tears, and you can smell the fragrance of this really heavy perfume. And if you feel like this is a crazy, um, uncomfortable scene, maybe you're feeling a little uncomfortable right now as we describe it, um, there's something even crazier than what this woman is doing. The craziest thing that stands out here is that Jesus, in this dinner party, when this woman comes to him, Jesus is just receiving it. Jesus is just taking what this woman is doing. You know, like, there's kind of a, a category in the ancient, in patriarchal societies, even in our society, for the, the hysterical woman, right? There's a category for that in our mind. There's a category for that. But what glares out here is that Jesus just receives what she's doing to him. He doesn't protest. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 like, I don't deserve this. He doesn't say, well, let's get off the ground. You're making me very uncomfortable. In fact, Jesus is the most comfortable person in this whole dinner party right now. It's very, he's very comfortable with what is happening. This woman is performing this amazing act of devotion and love in response to Jesus. Like she's the lowest servant in the world, and he's the most magnanimous king in the world. And he just takes it. Like it's the most appropriate thing for her to do. If anything's inappropriate, it's the rest of the guests. She's doing the most appropriate thing at this dinner party. Now, your response, I'm imagining, um, I, part of me feels this way too sometimes, who does this guy, Jesus, think he is? <laughs> who does he think he is to think that he deserves this, that he should take this and accept this like he deserves it? And if you're feeling this way about this scene, um, Simon, this Pharisee, feels similarly, if not the same way. Look in verse 39. What's his response to this scene? He sees all this going on, and he thinks to himself, man, this guy has been going around acting like a prophet or something from God, and now here he's acting like he deserves this or that somehow this is appropriate at a dinner party or in my house. But if Jesus were a prophet, if he were who he claimed to be, then he would know who this woman is. He would know the things she's done. He would know the, the havoc that she has wreaked on this community, on her family, on the people that she's uh, worked with. And Jesus would turn away from this. If he has any, anything to do with God, he would turn away from her. So it follows for Simon that this guy is obviously not a prophet. A prophet from God accepting and being touched even by this woman is totally inappropriate. You can imagine him just rolling his eyes like crazy in disdain as what's happening. Now, notice um, Simon's response is not, uh, how can Jesus possibly forgive this woman? I wonder what's going on here. He's nowhere close to that at all. His response is, Jesus must not be a prophet because obviously a prophet from God would never let a sinner touch him. This is his unspoken assumption here that God does not accept bad people. This is his assumption that he's living with. This is how he sees the world. So notice here at this point in the text, 
we have two different people with two different reactions to Jesus. Two fundamental differences we're presented with here. The woman and Simon. Notice that the radical difference for how they view God. For Simon, there is no question. God does not associate with sinners. God rejects the bad people, like this woman, and God accepts and even eats with the good people, like myself, Simon. Maybe Simon needs a little forgiveness, but he's okay. He's not a big, it's not a big deal. But this is the, this is the <coughs> de facto, this is in your heart, in my heart, this is the de facto default setting of your heart as well. This is the way actually the whole world works. This is the way, as far as I know, every religion in the world is this way. It boils down to this. God accepts you when you're good, and God rejects you when you are bad. Mostly good, you're in. Mostly bad, you're out. And notice this system. This, I just want to point this out. This is going to be kind of my main point. This system is so boring. This is so staid and stale and tired and boring. This is the way the world works, is how every religion works, and it is boring. The way, you know, people that are good are accepted, people that are bad are rejected. And that's how we come to treat other people too, and it's boring. There's no occasion in this system that we're describing here, of Simon's system, there is no occasion for tears of love and gratitude bursting out of your face. There's no occasion in Simon's system for feet kissing. There are no surprises in this system. There's no occasion for, for celebration. There's no excessive love or praise. There's no radical forgiveness of people that don't deserve it. This is, uh, there's no occasion to break a bottle of perfume um, and rub it on somebody's feet. <laughs> Instead, Simon's system is quid pro quo. That means this for that. I have my obedience for you, God, and you have your acceptance of me in response. And we're good. That's the system that Simon's worked out. And there's a lot of things to say about that system. We talk about that system a lot in here because it's so evil and wicked. But in this text, it is so boring. <laughs> it is so stale and stupid. The woman, on the other hand, is living in a very different world. Something has happened to her where this old system for her got exploded. It's no longer there. It's in smithereens at this point. She's a sinner who knows she's bad. She's done bad things. Now, remember, she is not a good person. This, we think like prostitute. I don't know what this comes from. Prostitute with a heart of gold. I don't know where that, is that from a song or something? But we just imagine that she's got this heart of gold like they do like tax collectors and stuff. But she's not. For example, in this town, right, in this culture where everybody gets married, who are her clientele? It's husbands and fathers, Right? She has played a part, the husbands and fathers definitely played a part as well, but she has played a part in breaking marriages, uh, breaking up families, um, destroying relationships. She's not a good person. In this system, though, God accepts bad people like her. It's radical. While they are bad, he meets them and he welcomes them. People with enormous sins, people that have hurt others, People that have been sitting with guilt for something they've done years ago and it's never going away from what they've done. Or maybe something that they're currently trapped in and doing. These people are in and they know they don't deserve it. These people are welcomed by God. This is the system that she's working in. 
And in this system, you don't know what's going to happen next, right? You don't know what's going to happen next. It's surprising. It's unexpected. Social conventions get blown up. People experience forgiveness when they never expected it, when they never predicted it, when they never even pursued it. There's weeping gratitude and kissing, and there's also deep mourning for sad things. Money gets wasted making feet smell good. Culture doesn't control you anymore. And one of the things that's most exciting, this is all throughout the Gospel of Luke, is that the powerless and the humble, they are the ones that are lifted up. Like at the end of the story, who's the good person in the story in Jesus' eyes? Who's the, who's the, the woman? She gets lifted up, this prostitute. And then this guy that's a, the, the Simon, who's powerful and prideful too, he gets, he, he gets humiliated at this, at this dinner party. I love the Gospel of Luke. Um, this is not a quid pro quo world that this woman is living in anymore. This is new, abundant life that Jesus offers for anyone who comes to him, anyone who entrusts themselves to him. This is her new, rea- this, is act- this is actual reality that she is living in for once, that she has found. Jesus has brought new, abundant life to this woman, and we get a small glimpse of it here at this dinner party. Now, if you're a Christian here, I'm wondering if this is something that you experience as you've come to know Jesus. Have you entered into this new, abundant life where anything can happen, <laughs> where it's surprising? Are you following Jesus that, 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 are you following Jesus in such a way that you don't know what's going to happen in your life, you don't know what God's going to bring, and it's, a, it's surprising, and it's amazing, and anything can happen? Have you entered into this, uh, this life of new relationships and celebration, radical forgiveness? You feel joy deeper than you ever have. You feel sadness also for sad things deeper than you ever have. You love people while they're bad. People love you. (laughs) Maybe you've experienced that. But you love people while they're bad, while they don't deserve it. Uh, Maybe you find yourself, what does this adventure look like? Moving toward people who in the past you would have rolled your eyes at. What an idiot. Um, What an annoying person. You find yourself actually moving toward people like that. Or maybe people that have made you anxious in the past. Their power over you has started to lessen and lessen and lessen. And new dynamics are happening that you never thought possible. Or are you, like me, tempted to play that old system again, where there's good people and there's bad people, and I hang out with these people and I reject these people? Jesus blows all of that up for this woman. He's blowing it up for Simon. Jesus is trustworthy. He has a new life, a new abundant life for us. Jesus is trustworthy because he gives his people new life. But then, after, this, um, after Luke records the woman, Luke, Jesus turns to this guy, Simon, and offers Simon a new death. Now, what does that mean? Good question. <laughs> um, as Simon is taking in this scene, which probably looks like uh, just chaos to him in his house, and he's thinking to himself how Jesus must not be a prophet. Jesus, ironically, because J- Jesus reads his thoughts and answers him, and he's got a story that he wants to tell Simon and the other guests. He wants to invite them into this new life, but first they have to experience something that's like death. This might be the, the shortest, uh, most profound story in the Bible that Jesus tells here in verse 41 and 42. And even telling a summary, I mean, it's going to be longer than the actual story, so I'll, I'll make it quick. But two people owed one man money, one man owed him um, a couple months' wages. One of, him, one of them owed a couple years' wages. And the money lender does something surprising and unexpected. He forgives them both. 
and the one with the, the one with the regular size debt gets forgiven, and the one with the dramatic, humongous size debt gets forgiven. And Jesus asked the question, who will love that money lender more? Who would express more gratitude? Who would have more devotion toward this money lender at the end of the day? And Simon answers, yeah, the one who had the larger debt, I guess. And Jesus, yeah, you're right. The one who has the larger debt, Simon. Then Jesus immediately turns to, uh, in the next verse, he turns to Simon, and he starts telling Simon, we're going to read all this, but he starts telling Simon all the ways that this woman's love has so far surpassed Simon's. He's showing Simon all the ways that he, Simon, has failed to love. And it might not sound like it at first, but what Jesus is doing is Jesus is inviting Simon in to this new life. He's telling and showing Simon that this woman's dramatic love for him was in response to being dramatically forgiven by him. And that Simon's lack of love, both to the woman and lack of love to Jesus, was in response to Simon's own lack of forgiveness, his own lack of being forgiven. Jesus wants Simon to die to his own sense of goodness and righteousness. Jesus wants Simon to give up, trying to be good. What Jesus is saying to Simon is, you do not love Simon because you never think you have anything to be forgiven for. You don't realize the debt that you actually have. You think your debt, you think your sin against me is some small thing that you can take care of, that it's no big deal, it's something you can clean up or fix up by yourself, but you can't. It's too big. But if you would only have eyes to see, Simon, how deep is your darkness and how burdened you are by the guilt of your sin, if you were to see what, in what trouble you are actually in, then you would come to me like this woman has, and I would forgive you and heal you. And you would be just like this woman, which Simon would probably hate. Um, Jesus is saying, I am the healer for the sickness that you refuse to admit is killing you. You know, the biggest hindrance for people to come to Jesus, it's not their sin. It's not their guilt. Jesus has got that. Jesus has got that for you. Jesus can take care of your sin and your guilt. The biggest hindrance for people to come to him is not the list of bad things they've done. The biggest hindrance to coming to Jesus is the belief that they are okay. The belief, the trust that I'm basically okay. I've got some stuff falling out over here, but I can get it back. I can clean this up. I can take care of myself. I just maybe need a little help. Uh, maybe a little inspiration will help me out, but I'm okay. That is the, that um, banal-sounding thing I just described. That is the thing that keeps people, that's the biggest hindrance for people to come to Jesus. We sang a song uh, a few minutes ago, Come You Sinners, and there's a, uh, a, a verse in there that always hits me. Um, it goes like this. It says, I think we have it up here. Okay, it says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Now, what this verse is saying is what Jesus is saying to Simon, basically. It's saying, come to Jesus, all of you sinners that with broken, messy lives, like myself. But if you tarry, if you wait until you get better, you're never going to come. There's some belief that we have that if I just get a little better, then I'll come to Jesus. But they never come. This text, that says, and the Bible would say, if you wait till you're better, you wait till you're morally better, you're never going to come to Jesus, ever. 
First of all, because you will never actually get better. Uh, secondly, because Jesus doesn't die <coughs> and take the punishment for people who have it all together, even if you somehow could. That's not who Jesus dies for. Jesus dies for sinners. He cares and loves bad people so much that he would die for them. Bad people, not good people. Jesus came for bad people. Jesus wants Simon to die to himself and admit his need, that he can never fix this. Jesus wants Simon to die to the idea that he can ever be good or right with God, that he can ever fix this debt he has toward God. Jesus says, I am the one who fixes your debt. Man, you know all those people out there, maybe in your life or in your family, that go around, they think that they're so great and they're so good, and they never think that they do anything wrong, even when they hurt all the people around them. And if they do, they have some kind of excuse for it. That's you. <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's you. That's us. We, think of, we, we can very easily find sinners all around us. Somehow I'm immune to this. Somehow I'm different, right? It's you. And Jesus is saying, give up trying to be good. And by the end of verse 47, Jesus, in so many different ways, has been showing Simon, you lack, Simon. You lack, Simon. You lack understanding of your sin. You lack goodness. You lack love to others, like this woman. You lack love to me, Jesus. And Jesus is pointing over and over again to his inability to be righteous with God. Jesus is calling Simon here to give up and die to himself and the idea that he can ever be found innocent in God's sight, much less good in God's sight. So Jesus kind of leaves him there for a second. He leaves him hanging. And I'm really curious uh, if, if Simon, by the end of this story, I, where, did this, where did Luke get this story from? It sounds like he got this from Simon. I think Simon maybe became a believer by the end of this. But Jesus leaves him hanging there in a very bad spot. And then Jesus immediately turns to the woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. To the woman. This is our third point. You can trust Jesus because he gives you peace. Now notice what Jesus is saying here when he says to the woman, he just left him hanging, right? He's left Simon hanging. And then he turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. This prostitute's sins are forgiven. What is Jesus saying? What's behind this, what Jesus is saying? The, the other people at the table pick up on it. They say, who is this who even forgives sins? They're freaking out a little bit by what Jesus said. What is Jesus saying here? So the other day, a few days ago, this happens, it probably happens regularly, but one of my daughters and one of my other daughters got into a little, this is based on a true story, okay. Uh, they got in a little fight, and um, hitting ensued. We'll just say hitting ensued. And one of them said that they were sorry to the other. But then this one got extra sad because this one refused to forgive them. And the sadness got deep. It got really deep. And I wanted to fix it, and... But I was thinking, like, what would happen if I were to enter into this scene and I were to say to, to uh, this daughter, I forgive you? What, what, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? It wouldn't make sense for me to forgive because I'm not the one holding the debt. I can't forgive someone unless they've done wrong to me. I can't forgive a debt unless you owe me. And what Jesus is saying to this woman is that all this sin that you have committed that has ruined the world, ruined this town, ruined families and marriages, and your own life as well, to this woman, these are, Jesus is saying, these are my things you broke. You are sinning against all these people, but me. You are sinning against me. This is 
Jesus, implicitly what Jesus is saying here is this is my world you broke. This is my town you infected. These are my people you've been hurting. These are my little children whose parents' marriage you're destroying. And even you, my daughter, who I created to be a joy and a blessing to the world, but instead you're ruining it and, and yourself. What Jesus is saying here is saying here is that he himself is God. This is why people are freaking out here and other places when he says stuff like this. Jesus is claiming to be God when he says, your sins are forgiven. The only one who can forgive sins like this is God. And after he uh, pronounces forgiveness to her, he sends her, he says, go into peace. Go into peace, literally, is what he says. Finally, after all these years, she has peace with God. Now, what's funny here is, though, is that Jesus didn't have to say this to the woman. She already knew that. That's why she came in response to this forgiveness, in response to this relationship that Jesus had made with her. Jesus said this for Simon. Jesus said this for Simon and anyone else who is in Simon's place, desperate position. Jesus is saying, you can't make yourself right with God, Simon, but I actually can. Watch. I can pay her debt, and I can pay yours too. Trust in me, Simon. Now, Simon, and probably this woman too, didn't exactly understand what it would mean for Jesus to pay the debt that they owe against God. What it cost Jesus. What did it cost Jesus to get this woman? What did it cost Jesus to come and find this woman and take her in? Um, if you lend me um, $1,000, I don't recommend doing that, but if you were to lend me $1,000 uh, and I say, I can't pay you back, and then you say, well, I'll forgive you the debt. What happens to that debt? Does it just like, just go into the ether? Does it just disappear? <laughs> what happens to that debt? Who ends up paying the debt and taking the hit? You do, yeah, right. And when Jesus says that he will forgive your debts for, to God for your sins of destroying God's beautiful world, who ends up paying the price? Jesus, he does. He takes the hit for you in your place. That debt that we owe God for our sins, for the wicked things that we've done, is just uncountable. It's insurmountable. It would take an eternity. Eternity means forever, so you would never pay it back. It would take an eternity for you to pay back the punishment. We are owed punishment. I know it's not a popular thing to say. People are owed punishment. Something in me says, no, that sounds wrong. But when somebody hurts, what, but when somebody like hurts someone close to you, suddenly punishment gets popular again, right? <laughs> that punishment that we deserved to pay that debt, if this woman trusts him, if Simon trusts him, if I trust him, if you trust him, then he takes the punishment for you when he died on the cross. And because he's man and God, he could take it to the very end. It would take an eternity for us to pay it back. We would never pay it back. But he took it in concentrate for everyone who believes in him in a few hours when he was on the cross. This is what costs, this is what it costs for Jesus to come get this woman who he loved. And he gladly did it because of his great love for her. It's what it costs to save you for your sins. And he gladly does it because of his great love for sinners, even like you. This whole text makes the case that Jesus is worth entrusting yourself to. He is worth it. He's the only one or thing in this world worthy of your trust. He brings you new life. 
in himself. He brings new death to yourself, which is good. And he brings you peace with God. Let's pray that God would help us to trust him. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would help us to trust you. Show us again and again these places where Jesus is trustworthy and give us, we, even gift is a faith. We need that faith to trust you. And we plead for faith to trust in Jesus this week. We pray you would show us new, exciting life where anything is possible. We pray that you'd help us to stop trusting in our own good works. And we pray that you would remind us again that we have peace with God so we may have peace with one another. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.